to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When my father said mommy took a little vacation, I knew that at that moment right there that the, the race has started. Okay, motherfucker, we're in a race. And now it's let the best man win. Welcome to the deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. Collier was just an 11-year-old boy when his whole world exploded. His father killed his mother. And what Collier did next will shock you. This is part one of the incredible story of a newly orphaned child's relentless pursuit of justice and growing up being famous for all the wrong reasons. Content warning, if you're suffering or triggered by the themes of this podcast, help services are listed in the show notes. Collier Landry, welcome to The Deep. Thank you so much for having me, Zoe. You have one of the most exceptional stories, especially when it comes to overcoming trauma and resilience. Can we just go, can we just start where it all begins? So where it all began was on December 31st, 1989. I'm 11 years old, soon to be 12. And my parents have been going through a divorce. They started their divorce about six months prior. And my father was very violent. I woke up to the sound of a scream that I'm pretty sure was coming from my sister who had been adopted six months beforehand. And was laying in my bed frozen and I heard a really loud thud like a body hitting a wall. Then about 60 seconds later, another loud thud. And what happened was, is I heard these footsteps come down the hall and I used to sleep with my door open. And I could see out of my peripheral vision as I was just terrified in my bed thinking, okay, something bad has happened. I see the feet in the doorway and they stop there and then they go away. So I end up falling back asleep. I wake up in the morning. I run straight to my mother's room and I'm scrambling through her bedroom and I notice that the sheets are all messed up. There's no covers. I'm moving through the sheets looking for blood because I literally think that something has happened to my mother. I mean, I know it instinctively. I come downstairs and my father is on the couch and he is just um, 
he has just taken a shower and he's sitting there in a towel wrapped around his waist. I say, where is my mother? And he doesn't say anything. And I say again, where is my mother? And he says, well, mommy took a little vacation, Collier. And then my father goes into this whole diatribe of how, you know, they got into a fight, how what I, you know, I said, I heard these thuds. He said, oh, you must've heard it. Your mother threw her purse at me. She ran out the door and got into a car at the end of the driveway. Now this is in Ohio in a small town, dead of winter, you know, New Year's Eve. And my mother walked, you know, a hundred meters down our driveway to get into some car in the middle of the snow and ice, right? <laughs> in the middle is of the night. Is this supposedly her car or just a random car? No, a, stra- a random car. Strangers, and okay. Stranger, yeah, a stranger could be one of her friends. He thinks it might be one of her friends, whatever. Um, my mother would have never left me. So my father goes into this whole diatribe how we're not going to call the police and we're not going to call the FBI. And I thought, as soon as he said, like, the FBI, I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's really weird. Like, this isn't, you know, we don't have CSI back then, but I'm thinking, this is, this is, that's an odd thing to say. And I was a very astute kid. And I'm thinking to myself, you're lying. To, like, I know you're lying. I know you did something to my mother. So my father leaves, and the night before, on New Year's Eve, my grandmother had arrived with my father, who is my father's mother, who is very close to my mother. And... My grandmother then gets into this mode of, okay, you need to do what your father says and I'll listen. I remember my mom had gotten us a cordless phone a few months earlier. I grab the cordless phone. I go upstairs and I have this Garfield doll that I stuffed phone numbers in that were all my mother's friends' phone numbers in case anything ever happened to my mother. Wow. I go into the bathroom. I call all of them. I tell them what happened. I say, you need to call the police because I'm not supposed to call the police, but I need you to call the police. Because this is quite intuitive for an 11-year-old to... What, what day was this? Did you say... Pa, this is New Year's ins- Eve. This is New Year's Eve, 1980. This is hours after I heard the incident. Hours? Yeah. Okay, so you're just like my mom? Because just touch on your relationship with your mom. Like I have a little boy. There is nothing like that bond between a mama and his, you know, the son. Were you close? Were, like, what was your relationship like? My mother was my whole world. Mm. and I was her whole world. So she she would never leave the house to even go to the shops in the daytime without telling you or you going with her? Very rarely, yeah. She would never, okay. she would always tell me, but she would probably wouldn't leave me alone. But I was old enough at 11 to like sort of take care of myself and not set the house on fire. Yeah. Um, but no, I was like her little companion and uh, she was my world, you know, and I was hers. And, you know, she, we had adopted a, a three-year-old girl from China, um, Taiwan, six months before all this occurred. So I had a sister too. Question on this. Why do you think your parents adopted a child at the beginning of their divorce? Well, they had, they weren't getting the divorce yet. Did you say that there was it, the divorce was like six months prior So it was to this? right, yeah. So they had already put in motion. The, but they everything. also adopted. Yes. Yeah, so she was already adopted. Oh. Actually, she came to the States. So okay. she was already being adopted. And then it's like, you can't say, well, now we don't want this kid. No, well, yeah, <laughs> shit. So that was all in motion way before It was all the, in motion. Yeah, got it. But she arrived yeah. just kind of when shit was hitting the fan. Pretty much, yes. Okay. She, cool arrived like, she arrived like right before the shit hit the fan. Okay, so there's a three-year-old little adopted sister now. Yes. So 
I tell my mother's friends, I say, look, you, you know, this is what happened. You need to call the police. So they called and two uniform officers showed up at the house and began to ask questions. My grandmother, of course, is furious that they're there and she's trying to get them to leave. You know, your father would be so angry with you. Why did you call? The I was like, I didn't call the police. <laughs> you know, technically I didn't. Um, and the police um, went through the house and I couldn't really explain anything. My grandmother was like right over me like a hawk. But I did tell one of the officers, I said, look, I said, um, you know, and, and my grandmother was saying, oh yeah, they got into an argument. She left. And I'm like, no, that's not what happened. But, you know, it was very hard for me to sort of juggle that. So what happened is, is they, they left and nothing happened. My father came home that night. So, and then the next day is New Year's Day. Nothing has happened. I call my mother's friends again and I say, what's going on? They're like, well, they, we filed a missing persons case. And I was like, there's no missing fucking persons case there. She's dead. Like she's not he, like oh she's my gone. God. Like my mother wouldn't leave me. Like I don't understand where this is not computing with everyone. Hang on a second. So you knew in your heart that she had died. I knew, I knew that she was gone, that she was, that she was dead. I didn't want to believe that, but I knew that she just didn't take off in the middle of the night willy nilly and just, you know, Oh, I'm going to no go sense. on a trip. Not at all. Not at all. But did you think that there was any other option? Maybe he'd taken her and put her somewhere in a, by, against her will? Or did you just go, no, it's worst case scenario? I pretty much thought it was worst case scenario. And even though my father was you know, six foot three, 230 pounds, you know, my mother's five foot six, 120 pounds, you know, it's not much of a match. But I knew that I would have heard screams and struggles and things down the hallway and there would have been a struggle if she was getting taken against her will, right? Yeah, right. So, and it, and she would have, you know, been screaming for me and it would have been a whole thing, right? You know, I called the friends back. I said, okay, what, like, like, no, she's dead. Okay, her, she, she's not, she's not, she's not missing. Like, something has happened is basically what I'm saying. Because I'm not trying to panic everyone, but I'm trying to panic everyone. So what happens is, is there's an investigator, a detective who it's, look, it's, it's New Year's Day in a small, sleepy town in the middle of Ohio. And he happens to see this missing person's, Thing, come across his desk just kind of like oh this is something that's happening oh, what is this a doctor's wife goes missing on new year's eve this is interesting and he comes to the house and his name was david messmore lieutenant david messmore and he knocks on the door my grandmother is apoplectic that he's here she's very derisive with him and she's obviously like pissed like why are you coming here investigating and bothering us and and I'm yeah. like, come on in. And I'm just like, and he's very charming and just like trying to be like, oh, I'm so sorry to disturb you, but I'm just looking for, I'm looking for Noreen Boyle. If you knew about her, we have this be, you know, and I'm just like, come in the house. And, you know, she's furious and she's, she runs to call my father and I, and I pull him aside and I look at him dead in the eyes. And I said, my mother is not missing. Something has happened to her. I believe she's dead. And he gives me his business card. Oh my god! <laughs> I hide it. Is. I hide it. And I was like, I was like, look, I was like, my mother would never leave me. Like that's it. Like my mother would never leave me. Something has happened to her. You know, like like hello. And this is not like missing. Like she's not like oh, it's like I took a little vacation. No, she is like something has happened to her. And I um, I get his business card. So I go to school the next day. So it's, you know, January 2nd, you know, 1990. And 
the first thing I do when I go to school, because I know that, okay, because my father was, they were getting a divorce and he was relocating to Erie, Pennsylvania, which is about five hours away from Mansfield, Ohio. And he was going to start a new life with his girlfriend. I, she was pregnant at the time. I didn't know this, but she was pregnant. So so this is pretty full on. We, we're talking about a really unhappy marriage, obviously, that has a lot of abuse, violence, infidelity. But he has a well-established partner that is pregnant, that he's moving, moving his life. Yeah. So the, the thing that I ended up coming to find out when I told my mother that I thought my dad was cheating on her. So this is you know, uh, this is after Father's Day 1989. So after my sister was adopted and everything like that, because he had, he had introduced me to her like a, like a month before, but then I saw him kiss her, but it wasn't like a friendly, like little kiss on the cheek. It was a tongue kiss, you know, as I put it when I was a kid, right? <laughs> and it was a rom- I knew it was a romantic thing, right? And I, and he asked me to lie about it to my mother and I did. And then I felt guilty. So the next day I confronted her and I said, I think daddy's having an affair. I'm really oh sorry. God. And For I told an her what happened. This is too much. She, you know, said, oh, I don't appreciate you lying to me, but thank you for being honest. And then she went on the phone and then I heard her screaming and she, apparently what the deal was is my mother knew about the girlfriends. My father was a chronic womanizer. He had many, many girlfriends, often multiples at once. She knew about all of this, but her rule with him was if you are going to go through these shenanigans, that's fine. You do whatever you got to do but don't involve our son. And once he involved me, he crossed, he crossed the line in the sand with her, you know, he crossed the Rubicon. Like that's it. There's no turning back. And my, cause my father's a narcissist. He's a malignant narcissist and sociopath. So flash forward to, this is January 2nd. I call, I go, I go to my school cause my father was away. So I knew that school for me was a safe zone. I could talk to whoever I wanted. I can say whatever. I go into my principal's office. I give her the card. I say, you need to call the Mansfield Police Department. You need to ask for Lieutenant David Messmore. You need to get him down here. He comes down to the school and I just tell him everything I know. I'm like, here's what happened. Here's the thuds. Here's the thuds. Here's this. Here's his history of violence. Here's what my mother said to me a month ago. She said, if I ever disappear, your father had me killed. If you, 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 like he has connections, mafia connections. He has this, like, you know, um, she, you know, I told him about the history of the girlfriend, I, anything. And I said, look, I'm going to go home <laughs> while my grandmother's downstairs dealing with my sister. I'm going to run upstairs for that brief time that I have. I'm going to pull the shelves out of the wall because there was crawl spaces and look for my mother's body. This is dead serious what I'm saying to this man, dead ass. And he's looking at me like, who, <laughs> like, who is this kid, first of all? Like this little mini Hercule Perot, right? And yeah. You know, and I ended up coming to find out like he was just sort of like dumbfounded, but also like really impressed by me because of like, see, here's this kid that is so determined to find out what has happened that he's not going to let up. And what was happening behind the scenes is at the same time, he was getting pressure from his boss, the police chief, the captain saying, why are you looking into this missing person? This is a doctor that can sue us. You know, this is an, a, a, an affluent doctor. This is a community that frowns upon these types of things. He goes, yeah, but this kid, like this kid is adamant about the fact that his mother would never leave. Like he's, he, he, yeah, you know, he knows, I was the driving force, right? He just knows. And so what ensued for the next 20 some days 
is a series of of me going home, finding more clues, looking for like, okay, to see if I could find her purse that she would never leave the house where from, okay, or, or without. Found the purse. Looking for this, looking for that. And what ended up happening is my father was coming home like late at night because he was working in Erie and he started having like, he had these scratches on his hands. And then he was really sore and he wanted me to rub something on his back, like Ben Gay, which is a muscle rub on his back because he was really sore and he said he was moving all these boxes to move into his new office and all this stuff, right? And I was like, this is all serious red flags, serious red flags. Yeah. And my father, who had a proclivity for violence and violent movies and things like that. Had you seen physical acts of violence towards your mother? Yes. And myself. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And my father also had, you know, also was apoplectic and he could literally at the, the rage that would come from him from something as simple. I remember one time I was helping my mom cook breakfast in the kitchen and I dropped an egg on the floor, like an egg. And he went ballistic and threatened to kill her and me. And he just like, just like that, like a switch just flipped. Right. And it was just, he had this, this rage that could just come full on out of the middle of nowhere. So what happened is he starts doing this and I'm telling Massmore, like every time I go to school, I'm like, call Dave Massmore. Let me talk to him on the phone, get him down here, whatever it is. Like I'm little, little Hercule Perot doing my investigation and he is you know, he's listening to me and I'm like, okay, so what have you found out? Well, we haven't found anything. We haven't found anything. So I'm driving with my father one night because he's like, come with me to my office. I'm, I need to pick up some paperwork. Now, mind you, this whole time while my mother is missing, his his um, his divorce lawyer is coming over. They're having meetings like in our kitchen or in our little dining room area. There's lots of dis intense discussion. There's signs on the door saying no comment, no police, no this. Massmore keeps coming to the house to try to interview my father. My father won't talk to anyone. It won't talk to the police, nothing. And no questions, no reporters, whatever the hell it is, right? What happens is my father says, I want you to come to the office with me. I'm going to go, going to go pick up some paperwork or whatever. I'm like, okay. So uh, my father, we go to this office, we pick up this paperwork and then we go to the gas station. And I know that this is like my fucking opportunity. And my father walks into the gas station to pay for gas and I can see him outside the window and he goes in and he's in there rummaging, you know, talk, moving around the gas station. And I, I'm like, okay, and I start rummaging through his car and I open up the center console and I find two Polaroid photographs. One is of a house that I've never seen before in my life. The second one is of his girlfriend with her two children who I'd met several times sitting in front of a fireplace that was covered in plastic. And they were both Polaroids. And I thought to myself, huh, this is a clue. So I went to school the next day. My father comes out, you know, I put them away, hit him back in his console. Went to school the next day. Said, call Dave Messmore. Got him down there. I said, I found something in my father's truck. I found these photographs. And I think there's a house. And Sherry, his girlfriend, mistress, is there with her kids. Something is up. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So then about another week goes by and things are getting more and more uneasy at the house. Like my father's coming home and I can tell my father's demeanor is changing because I think he's starting to get wind that like, oh, I think my son is talking to the cops. I think he just was having this instinct. And I think that between him and my grandmother, like, okay, like something's off with Collier. He's a little too calm or whatever, you know, like you yeah. would do something bad. And my father says to me, hey, hey, Collier, I have a medical conference in Florida. I want to take you with me. We'll do this father and son bonding trip. Now, Every year we would go to these medical conferences. They were always in like Clearwater Beach, Florida. And, but they were usually like in the spring, not in January. <laughs> and so I thought that was odd. And second of all, I have been able to swim since I was four years old. I went to school the next day. I said, call Dave Massmore again. He comes down. And I say, look, Dave, I said, my father wants to take me on this father-son bonding trip to go to this medical conference in Florida. I said, Dave, I've been able to swim since I was four years old. I assure you that I'm going to drown in the Gulf of Mexico. You will never see me again. Holy shit. How are you even functioning? I think when you deal with really serious trauma and like, not like serious trauma, like like real fucking shit. Like you lose your whole family. Like, you know, you're in the middle of a war, you know, something like just your whole, your whole world gets ripped apart. I think that what happens is your body just, you go into, you can either go into fight or flight, or you can go into this sort of this state when you're in your, uh, your, your limbic system and you're, and you're able to analyze and assess and go, okay, I'm going I can't control what happened, but I can control what happens next and how I'm going to respond to this. And I actually did a TED talk about this. And I said, you know, it's like your why to what now, right? You're like, why did this happen? Okay, well, I, I can't concentrate on that. I got to focus on what's happening right now in front of me. Next. And I think yeah. that when you lose this, you, when you use this, it is what ultimately leads you through the trauma in a way that like, okay, you're like, I, there's nothing I can do but I can do this. I can make this action happen. I can do, I, I, I can take control of this because I can't control anything else. And what I knew is when my father said, mommy took a little vacation, I knew that at that moment right there that the, the race has started. Okay, motherfucker, we're in a race. And now let's it's let the best man win. Yeah. And I was determined because at that point in my mind, I had realized I have absolutely nothing to lose because I just lost the most important thing in my life to me. So fuck it. <laughs> now it's about like, you're not going to get away with this. I'm going to find out what happened. Like, it's just not going to happen. And I guess that's, I mean, I guess that's extraordinary. I don't know. I mean, it's just. It's fucking extraordinary. It is extraordinary. Well, thank you. But I think that the thing is, is that when you, you know, you, you go through these things. It's just, you, you just, you just, you, you, you're, you're doing the best you can, right? And maybe you're compartmentalizing what you're doing, but 
you know, I say to Dave, you know, I, I tell him about the house and, or I tell him, you know, I told him about the house. I, you know, I tell him about like, I'm not going to come back from Florida because I'm basically like, you need to get me the fuck out of my house. Like this is, he's going like, to kill me. He, he's going to kill me. Like my father is going to kill me. Like he didn't kill me that night, which mm-hmm. if I had moved, if I had looked up from that sleeping position, you know, it's nothing to make the hole a little bigger. <laughs> like, throw another body there. I don't care. They both went together. They both ran away together. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. She took her son in the middle of the night and, you know, Hey, the the daughter too. Yep. So yeah, they disappeared. I don't know what happened. So what happened is, is that I was woken up a couple days later, six in the morning. These people had come into the house. They were like, they would come into my bedroom. They're like, we're from child's protective services. We're, we're going to take you. You have 20 minutes to pack a bag. And help your sister pack a bag and we're leaving you must have been so and, relieved and i was like yeah but i was also terrified and i was like well what about my dog and they were like well you we'll oh, come right. back and get your dog and you yeah, know right. i never saw my dog again and you know uh i helped my sister pack a bag and as i'm coming down the stairs i see the entire crime lab from the mansfield police department in my house guys in white coats and they've got gadgets and things and moving in body scanners and there's cop cars all outside and everything. I mean, it's sure it's, it's like a scene from a movie. It's on, it's on. It's like, Oh, this is happening. And they're looking for my father. And that's what I find out when I go to this stay at the principal's house for my school. Uh, cause I didn't go to school that day. And there, you know, I speak to Dave and, and I speak to this social worker who comes to see me and they're, she's basically saying, your father's on the run. <laughs> the cops are looking for your father. So that night I go to bed and I have this terrible, like I had asthma growing up as a kid, but I have the worst asthma attack of my life. And I can't sleep. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to die. <laughs> like I have no medical stuff. And my father was always somebody who took care of me, gave me prednisone shots or cortisone shots to stop the inflammation when I got really, really bad. He wasn't there, obviously, and there was no medical treatment, right? And I'm literally struggling for every breath. And so what happens is I wake up or you know, I stay up all night and I go to the hospital and they give me a breathing treatment in the morning, but they're ushering me past this, um, you know, the honor boxes where they have newspapers. And I don't know if they have them in Oz, but we have the United States and the newspaper and you got to put the quarter in and you just take one. That's why they call it honor Mm-mm-mm. box, right? So I noticed that they didn't want me to see that. And there's a lot of chaos going on at this oh hospital. So give me the breathing treatment. And then they say to me, you know, Lieutenant Messmore found your mom. And then this t- eternity seems to happen. It was really probably two seconds. And they said, and she was dead. And oh. the first thing out of my mouth was that bastard. It's the first thing I said. And it was, I guess, a relief because I knew I wasn't crazy. But it was like this realization that that my life would never be the same. So I guess there was this validation of of that, okay, that I'm not crazy and that all of this has led up to this. But at the same time, it's... um, It's like this is like we've officially crossed the Rubicon, and now it's, it's like the happen. worst. It's, it's the, the worst, worst, of the worst thing in the, the, worst, whole the whole world. Wow. Yeah. And I also knew 
at that moment that it was about to get worse. <laughs> that like this really sucks right now, but now it's really going to get hard. And I testified for the grand jury, to the grand jury, about my father and his conduct so they could secure his indictment for my mother's murder because they had, they had discovered her body buried underneath that same house that I found a photograph of. My father had buried her underneath the basement floor in a grave, covered it with concrete, covered it with indoor-outdoor carpeting, and then built bookshelves on top of it and painted everything. So it was a brand new room. So this house that Sherry and the kids were going to live in, Correct. or were living in? No, they weren't living in it yet, no. But they, they were going to. to move into a home that your mother's body was buried in. Correct. That is so fucking morbid. Yeah. What, he's just going to have eggs at the table every morning? Yeah. And he knows the thing that he's done is in the house? That's exactly what's going on. Were you supposed to live in the house too? I, I would have. I would have. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking back to the night that this all occurred and everything that you heard, what did he actually do? Now you can place the pieces. It was surreal. And, you know, there were things that I, I testified about at the grand jury and, you know, there was this indoor outdoor carpeting that was covering the floor. Well, I had seen that green AstroTurf indoor outdoor carpeting on our patio at our house in Mansfield. She was wrapped in a blue tarp. That tarp was at our house on our patio in Mansfield. Like my father, this is a premeditated murder. Planned. My father had planned all of this for months <laughs> that he was going to do this. So I testify at the grand jury and then, you know, my mother's side of the family and my father's side of the family decide they want nothing to do with me. My mother's side of the family literally says to me verbatim, this is my godmother. <laughs> my godmother in the Catholic church said, we will take care of you for better or for worse. Anything ever happens. Whatever happens. Be, whatever happens. She says, we cannot take you because uh, you look like your father. And we can't deal with that. My father's side of the family blames me for my father getting caught, <laughs> which is, you know, true. But, you know, I didn't tell my father to kill my mother. Like, it's not my fault. Like, I'd have nothing to do with this, but they blame me for his bad behavior. Uh, that is my fault for, to, for violating the family code or whatever the hell you want to call it. And that's, yeah. So I go into the foster care system. This is fucking the hardest thing, right? Because you have lost the most meaningful, important person in your universe. All you know, all you know. Yeah. The, the supposedly person that was supposed to protect you, your dad has done this horrific thing. So yeah. the, the grief and the trauma and the, you know, your whole world has imploded. And then to turn around and the carers are now abandoning you. Yes. All of the people that you know. Yep. And then you're, you're, so there's no roots, there's no, there's nothingness, and you're just placed in, a, in the system. Correct. It's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it's the wolves. They're like, you can go, fu you can fuck you off, you can go fend with the wolves. <laughs> so the foster homes that you were in, you, you know, there's not a great track record for kids' well being 
in in a lot of these situations. Were you moved around a lot? Were you comfortable? I was just in one foster home. And no, it was not good. <laughs> and it was the principal for my school, and they wanted custody of my sister. So they took us both. The principal? In. Yes. Who, uh, who, yes, the principal for my that school. That you were going to and asking to call the Correct. agent? Correct. They, they, yes. they fostered you. Yes. And they wanted to, they, my mom was trying to help them also get a, a girl. They wanted to adopt a girl from China. They used to take care of and babysit my sister when my mother, you know, like would let them to watch her or whatever from time to time. So they really loved her and they made it so they had stepped in and then they told um, children's services that I didn't bond with my sister and I should be separated from them. I didn't know any of this was going on. I wanted to be adopted by the police officer, David Massmore, who, who was from the case. And we, cause we had bonded cause we had bonded and yes. that's where I wanted to go. They wanted to adopt me. I wanted to do that. Oh, and they did? the judge. Yeah. And so, and then wow. the judge said, you know, in court, if you think that I'm going to put you with your, with the guy that put your father in prison, you're out of your mind. And I started screaming and crying and, and they had to take me out of the courtroom and all this stuff when it was a hearing. Sorry, but why? Because, well, ultimately that judge had been investigated by him years prior on corruption charges. Bullshit. That is some bullshit. So, so they won't let you, oh my God. So it's like a vindictive thing. Correct. So they couldn't just give me that one little thing. Like this kid who's been through all this shit, just couldn't have that one, that one thing. Like you couldn't just give the kid something that would have been. It's like, it's like a constant smack in the face, you know, like, so who adopted you? The principal? So so no, no. So the principal did not adopt me. So she, they kept custody of my sister and I was adopted by another family that I didn't really know that well. They went to my school. And look, it ended up being, you know, great eventually. Like we, we have a fantastic relationship now. They were in the film. Uh, they were very supportive. They brought me into, you know, I went from a family that was like myself most of my life as an only child and a sister to like my adopted father has nine brothers and sisters and my adopted mother has four brothers and sisters. And they had this like giant family. It was like, <laughs> you know, at the family reunion, there's like 200 people. I was like, who are all these people? It's so dizzying. You know, so it went to this very unique experience they had a younger son that was three years younger than me so i had a brother that i took on and or they took me on rather and you know it just um uh, that's uh, i stayed in the community that i was from and you know the thing is is i was the key witness against my father because i'm the one who initiated all this and I'm the one who knew all of the facts and everything against my father was circumstantial. So, you know, he had hired this very high powered loyal legal team, two different lawyers and a veteran criminal defense attorney, you know, in the state of Ohio and who had an excellent track record for getting people off. And, you know, I'm in foster care in a not great situation to begin with. And essentially all of them. And I had to, you know, the prosecutor had told me, he said, look, you know, we don't need you to testify. Are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, well, it's over my dead body. But what I don't think anyone really seemed to understand is if my father with his high power defense attorneys gets off, my life is over 
like my father is a very violent person. Like he's going to stick me in a ditch and that's going to be all over again. Or I'm not going to stop hearing about this. Uh, you know, remember the time you tried to get me arrested for killing your mother and he's got away with it. Right. I'm going to grow oh up my like God. this. It's, yeah. Cause what you go back into his care. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If he's off, that's just like on the flip side, my life is over anyways. So it's like, it, 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 it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like you're fucked either way. But I was like, I said to myself, I'm going like, what I need to do the right thing here, and the right thing is honoring my mother. Is I've come this far, I know what happened, I know what the truth is, and fuck this dude. And I testified in court for two days, staring my father down. On the witness stand, my father was found guilty on June 26, 1990, and he is still incarcerated to this day. Wow. What was the um, charge, like, in the, the sentence? Aggravated murder and abuse of a corpse. 21 and a half years with parole. So every year, he, every, every 10 years, he comes up for parole. And what happens every 10 years? Well, so in 2010, uh, he was up for parole. And I actually advocated for him because, I, first of all, I knew he wasn't going to get out. <laughs> you know, I told other people, I'm going to go do this because he's my father. And also, I want to be able to tell this story. And I want my father's cooperation one day. And I want to for whatever reason I'm trying to get answers and I know that this will continue to sort of help me on my journey, but I don't really like, I knew that they weren't going to remand him to my custody. I didn't, I, I, I couldn't take care of my father. I couldn't do like, I, I wasn't financially no. in that position. Like there's no way. I mean, I still, no couldn't, way. I still couldn't do that. It would upset my whole world. Right. And why would you as well? Yeah, exactly. You know I mean? And so, but I did say, you know, I feel like, you know, I went on his behalf because I knew him being a narcissist and a sociopath that that would curry favor with him. And I, uh, and I knew that there was like 30 some people that were saying, no, don't let this guy out of prison. And essentially they were like, don't let him out of prison because he's going to kill his son. Like he will kill Collier. Absolutely. He's a vengeance, a vengeful person. He's a psychopath, you know? So, uh, so he didn't get let out and he was just up for parole in 2020 and they didn't let him out. What will happen when the, the sentence has been like finished. Well, there's no finishing because he's on old law. So every you have to be you have to go before the parole board before they release every you. ten years. So they continue, or it, it goes ten, and then it gives five. So next time he'll be every five before years. in like 2025, right? But uh, will he ever get to, out? I have no idea. I mean, if he got released in 2025, he would get out. And he'd be 82 years old. I don't think he should be released. Will you have to testify again at that parole hearing? Sure. Yeah. And then you just prove the case again. Yeah. I mean, I just say, I don't think, I, I think also at this point, like he is just so institutionalized. It doesn't do anyone a bit of good for him to be released. It doesn't do anything for him. It's, it's, it's actually going to throw his world up to you, in my personal opinion. Uh, but he's also very vengeful. Like my father is a very vengeful person. This was just part one of my interview with Collier. Next week, we discuss growing up being famous for all the wrong reasons and what happens when he confronts his father as an adult. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. 
If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's the Deep. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting, it's quirky, it's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you'll hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.